When my wife, Catherine, and I were first married, it was right before I was going to seminary in New York, so we had one year to do, to do something. I was a, a religion major, and if you've got one year to do something as a religion major in North Alabama, there's not much. And so we went and lived in my hometown, and we lived, and I'm from there, so I can say this, in the middle of nowhere. We lived um, up on what's called Sand Mountain, and we lived out in, 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 the, in the country in a little bitty farmhouse there. Um, if you're from Colorado and you visited where we used to live, you would not call it a mountain. But we did, and we still do. Right beside our house was this little bitty country church. I never stepped foot in there, even though it was right beside us, um, because we would drive into town every Sunday. I was headed to seminary. And we would drive into town every Sunday, of course, and go to the Episcopal Church. But this little country church right beside us really caught my attention and fired my imagination over the Christmas holidays because, because they had an outdoor live nativity scene every night from about December 1 onward. It was remarkable. It was this incredible sort of reinterpretation of the manger scene. So, for example, they didn't have camels. Nobody has camels up on Sand Mountain in Alabama. So they had donkeys and horses instead. They didn't have um, sheep because nobody has sheep around there. But there are a lot of goats up there. So they had goats instead. And then, of course, they had the traditional shepherds and the angels, and of course, Mary and Joseph, and of course, a baby lying in real hay. It was all set up in the, in the cemetery, which was in front of the church, which had this, this lovely driveway that went around the cemetery and between the, the driveway was between the cemetery and the church. And they set the live nativity up in the, in the cemetery. So no matter how cold it was, you would just drive by and see it all. And it just worked beautifully and wonderfully. We did not have live animals last night, but I suspect one reason why you're coming this morning is because you knew that last night was a zoo. <laughs> and it was. There were people everywhere. It was wonderful. I've never, truly, I've never seen more children on Christmas Eve, and, and they did a marvelous job building um, the manger scene. One of the things that's so different about Christmas morning, though, is not just that we're a little less zoo-like this morning. The greater difference is the gospel reading. The gospel reading does not come from Luke or Matthew. It's from Luke and Matthew, and only from Luke and Matthew, that we get the zoo, get the manger scene, get all of the angels and the heavenly host and the barnyard animals all making their way to that crash or that manger. It's only in Matthew and Luke that, they hap that that happens. John's gospel, historians believe, and they're, they're probably right, um, that John was written last, well after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what that could mean is that, that John knew their story of Christmas and chose to tell a different, a complementary, but a different version of that Christmas story. Same story, 
but a different lens on what all it means. And in John, therefore, there's not a manger. There's no description of Jesus' birth whatsoever. It's fascinating, fascinating. And instead what we get is this poetic meditation, a philosophical meditation on the Word becoming flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and through this Word, all things, all people, all of it, was created in and through this, through this Word. And this Word is the light that shines in and through all people. Marvelous, but so, so, so different. Whereas, whereas Matthew and Luke emphasize the particularity and colorfulness of, of all the people, shepherds and angels and Mary and Joseph and everybody stumbling forward to that, to that manger. John, on the other hand, preaches universality. Not one birth, but all of us coming to birth in and through Christ. Just amazing and a totally, totally different lens on the Christmas story. It's a story about meaning, not what happened, so to speak. If you kept going in John chapter 1, if Amy would have kept reading, here's what would have happened. We wouldn't have gotten out of chapter 1 and Jesus would already be an adult walking around asking people questions. That's how fast it goes in John's gospel. Jesus is quickly an adult walking around as the savior of the world, questioning everyone. There's no way to make a live nativity scene based on John's gospel. As we read John's gospel on Christmas morning, I think the real invitation is this. I think the real invitation for us on Christmas morning as John's gospel is read is for all of us, each and all of us, to be born again, to be renewed, to be made new and let the light shine in and through us, to trust that promise that that word echoes again and again, just like a steady heartbeat within our chest, echoes every single breath we take, echoes every moment of our lives, is just below the surface of every person we meet, whether friend or foe, just below the surface of all living beings even. To trust, therefore, that the word below the surface always brings meaning and purpose or hope and connection, if we could just have the eyes to see it, that all people through this word and all living things are interconnected. So I think the invitation is to be born again, to be born anew. And for the Episcopalians in the cathedral this morning, we would add to be born again, not just once, but over and over again throughout the course of a lifetime. Amen and Merry Christmas.